correspondence was making sense of some of this data. And the, the, the sort of startling headlines was that loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is rivaling things like excessive drinking, smoking, you know, in terms of damaging our health and shortening our lives. And the conclusion was that countering loneliness is critical to improving the nation's health. And you can measure something like social isolation, can't you? Do people live alone? Do they engage in any social activities? Do they have friends and family? But loneliness is that and it's something else as well, isn't it? People can be surrounded by other people, they can be in busy jobs, they can do all kinds of keep fit every day of the week, but they are still chronically lonely. And loneliness, this article was saying, is compounded by shame because people don't want to admit to being lonely, so they suffer in silence. And loneliness is perhaps a bit more subjective. I feel lonely because relationships, either in quality or quantity, just aren't fulfilling. And I, I don't know if I'm really known. I don't know if anyone really understands me. I don't know if I'm valued or needed. And these massive studies have shown different things, and as I say, you make what you will of the data. But they, they reckon that loneliness sort of goes through this U-shape in a life where young people, especially in COVID, were particularly ones that signaled they were experiencing severe loneliness for some obvious reasons. And then apparently in your midlife, people start <coughs> to say they, they're less lonely. And then as we get older, people start to experience uh, loneliness again. And it's triggered, interestingly, I thought, by some significant life events, and one of them was going to university. So guys, we're going to be praying for you as you start out this term if you're a fresher here at Exeter University. Other events were bereavements can trigger loneliness, retirement, moving home, or, or something like becoming a carer. So they did these massive studies which associated loneliness with lots of physical conditions. It said loneliness is a stronger risk factor for death than physical inactivity and obesity, and then it listed off loads of kind of illnesses ranging, ranging from a heart attack to depression, loads of things in between. It made for quite tough reading. And this UK-based organisation um, that is called Campaign to End Loneliness recommends these initial steps. I thought these were great. What do you think of these? Initial steps to, to counter loneliness in us as a nation. Saying hello to a neighbour. Yes, come on. It said, like my, find, find people to interact with, with whom you have something in common. So like-minded interaction. Find people you have something in common with and interact with them. Volunteering, it said, particularly might appeal to men who might shy away from receiving support themselves but are more open to helping others. For young people, this was their tip, uh, especially if you are um, in an environment where you can feel sort of severely judged by glossy social media feeds. The thing was, um, please, please. <laughs> meet people face to face and put your devices away. <laughs> I thought some of these were a bit common sense-ish, um, but they are certainly, this was the advice from the government as to how we should start to counter loneliness in our 
um, in our generation. Loneliness then has these severe negative psychological and physiological effects. And by contrast, social connection and community actually heal people. Social connection and community actually heal people. They actually prolong life. Now friends, we are living in a time when for many of us, uh, we're feeling a bit concerned that the fabric of our society is eroding, that community is, is eroding, that families are breaking apart. And although most of us still long for a lasting and loving uh, set of relationships, they feel harder to come by. And this line that the culture sometimes throws us, that freedom lies in radical individualism, is being exposed as not just empty, but actually bad for your health. <coughs> and now as we come to this, Paul's vision of church, I must admit, I got more and more excited as this week went by. Because we have good news, don't we? We have good news. And you will know that terrible joke about the Sunday school teacher who says to this, this group of children, um, what is grey and has a fluffy tail and eats nuts and this little hand goes up and the boy says, I know, I know, I, I know the answer is Jesus. And they sound very much like a squirrel. And the thing is, the answer actually is Jesus. The answer actually is Jesus. And God's vision of the church, as we get it here laid out by Paul, is this. It's of a, it's a community of people bound together within the body of Christ, full of purpose, knowing they belong, knowing what they're good at, and why they matter. And longing, even more than that, to see one another flourish and grow. And that is actually a recipe for healing and wholeness. That is glorious and powerful and transformative good news in action. Could it be, I wonder, if the church in our time is being called to stand out, to be a sign to this generation, to stand out from the culture as an agent of hope and life and connection and belonging and purpose and identity is everything that people are longing for. It's, it's, it's everything that people are desperate for. The answer actually is Jesus. <laughs> so I thought, just since we don't know each other very well quite often at this time of year, I would love to give you 30 seconds to say hello, not to a friend, but to a neighbour, and to trust that that is part of healing and wholeness for us as a community. Because of 
in the world. So as an individual follower of Jesus, you are signing up to be different. To be a sign of heaven invading earth. To be a sign of good news, of hope, of love, of purposefulness. And as a body together, we are signing up to be part of something living and hopeful that invites people out of anxiety and into possibility. We are being invited to be part of a sign that is countercultural in our time. And Paul says there in verse 2, this is going to mean renewing our minds. And that means adjusting your thinking. And I, I once got to go to Mozambique and we were visiting a, a tiny, tiny little church plant in the middle of nowhere in rural Mozambique. And all the family had gathered around to tell it. It said that it, was, it, it wasn't really... Um, it was kind of white noise, you know, white noise, sort of snow, and you could just about make out that something was happening. But I was like sitting there going, will someone adjust the set? You know? <laughs> but we watched for hours. <laughs> Paul says, adjust your thinking. There's something better. There's something better. Adjust the set. <laughs> Paul's vision of a church was a shocker in its time, just so you know. And if you if you love Tom Collins, the massive book that John and Barrett have read that I, I struggle with, um, Roman society functioned, and you, if you're studying history, you might know more about this than me, but um, that society that Paul was speaking into functioned on knowing your place. So there was a hierarchy, you knew your status, and part of your aim in life was to climb up the social ladder. And part of that would mean shoving others out, out, out way and crushing them underfoot. And the, and the idea was that you raised your social status so that you were more and more honored and acknowledged as being of import. And one of Rome's most famous philosophers apparently sent Pompey, the great Roman general, off to war with these words. Always fight bravely and be superior to others. So that was just normal. If you were on a certain rung of the ladder, you looked down on people at the bottom of it. And you kept a decent distance from them. You expected that they would suffer for your comfort. You thought, indeed, you knew that you were better than them and of more worth. In fact, it was the right thing to do to maintain that system. People knew their place. And the idea, think about this, the idea that all are equal in that culture would have been ridiculous and even immoral. Can you imagine how shocking this is? But in Christ, you're to be humble. You're to associate with the lowly. Because your gifts are from God and they're by his grace. You're to see yourself as part of this diverse community that includes people you would have been avoiding like the plague. You are being told that you need the very people you would love to disassociate yourself from. So this was radical. This was shocking. Living out the gospel in Rome was going to require you to adjust your set. And what about us? Let me look at 
two ways that Paul's vision of the church will impact us. And it needs to require us to renew our thinking. And I think that comes down to two things. Renew our thinking about ourselves and renew our thinking about other people. And we're speaking particularly about others in the church. Now, if you are looking at these verses, in verse 1, Paul says, all of this is in view of God's mercies, by the mercy of God. And then in verse 3, he talks about the measure of faith that God has assigned. And in verse 6, he says, we've been given these gifts according to the grace given to us. So what he's saying is that we are living out of what we've been given. We are living out of grace that has been shown to us, not what we deserve or what we feel entitled to. So first, renew our thinking about ourselves. It's not actually about me, it's about him. And if I find myself in a position of influence or power, if you find that you are top of the your gifting is strong, remember, the gift is exactly what it is. Gift. God has given you that gift. Your job is to use it, to use it well, and to use it for the benefit of the wider community. And that is what counters something Paul seems to have seen in the Roman church. Uh, conceit, basically. Arrogance. Thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, if anyone has got a gift of kindness, it's Bob. Bob astonishes me by his gift of kindness. So it must have been quite tough for him to have to speak about that last week. <laughs> Pete, you know, let's not think too highly of ourselves. Um, but actually, the truth is as well, in our culture, many of us struggle not with thinking too highly of ourselves. Perhaps some of us at times certainly do. Um, but rather with self-doubt and low self-esteem. So interestingly, what, what would Paul be writing to, to our culture now? Where people struggle to think they've even got a part to play in that body. I think Paul would still be saying, listen, God has given you gifts. That's what he says. So we're going to trust him. He's given you gifts. He has made you a vital part of his body. So yes, you need us, but we need you. So in view of God's mercy, please would you stop excluding yourself. Trust that you have been given something that we as a wider body need. Don't withdraw, don't deprive us of you. And the gifts that God wants to you, you well, give to us as a body through the unique part that you have to play. And second, he, I think Paul is asking us to renew our thinking about other people. So his message to these Romans who seem to be struggling with this sort of self-aggrandizement um, is as much as they need you, you need them. And as much as you think everyone would be better off if they were more like you, it's actually a gift to you that people aren't like you, that they're different from you. And there's two great metaphors in there from Paul. The first is one about family, isn't it? In verse 1 he says, brothers, brothers and sisters. Now pause to think of 
about that, after that data about loneliness, how wondrously healing is it that, that you are part of the family of God, that you are a brother and sister in Christ. You are fellow heirs with him. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, lets you know deep in yourself that you are a child of God. And as children of God, Paul reminds us, and there's that little bit in the gospel, isn't there, where someone says, oh, Jesus, your family have come, and they're gathering outside, and Jesus actually <coughs> says, hey, wait a minute, this is my family, because these are the, those seeking to do the will of the Father. And then Paul, I think, is sort of riffing off that and saying, brothers and sisters, let's discern together what is the will of God, the good, acceptable, and perfect will. So we are named as family. We are named as those together who are trying to pursue knowing what the will of the Father might be in our time. And together, how we can live out the age to come because heaven is where the will of the Father is fully and completely enacted and eternally enacted. So we're trying to be those who are not conforming to this age, but living out the age to come in our time as we seek out what is the heavenly Father's will for us here and now. But then he moves on to this favorite metaphor of his, I think, which is about the church being a body. And one of the biggest lies the culture will feed you, I think, is that freedom is all about uh, sort of increased autonomy, increased individualism. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Do what you feel like doing. Don't do it if you don't feel like it. Value yourself by putting yourself first. Make sure you're getting your needs met before you try to help others. You don't need anyone. You can't trust anyone. Rely on yourself. Focus on yourself. Get what you want. And in fact, individualism is deeply Christian if it points us towards the value that every human being made in the image of God carries. It's deeply Christian. Even, even here, as we see Paul saying, everyone has a contribution to make, and that should be valued. But individualism that pushes you to the center, or it tells you that being apart is better than being apart. You see what I mean? Yes, you, you like that? Being apart is better than being apart. That's a lie, my friends. That is a lie. Because as you become a part of something bigger than just you, that shifts you, frankly, off the center, and I'm sorry if that's a terrible shock and disappointment to you, but that will lead you to life. And you choosing to be a part, according to this research, will lead you to, I mean, an early death, apparently. The other lie you may have swallowed is that you will always be a victim, you have nothing at all to bring to the table, you, you are dependent on other people, and in this scenario, sort of community functions as your support group, uh, but you have nothing to bring to the table. You know what kind of body that will be? will be one with a terrible limp. And at times, a 
Normally, there is something about the kingdom of God whereby as we play our part, we are healed. As we play our part, we start to grow. Now, we're individualistic often about the way we talk about salvation. We give our lives to Jesus, and we decide to follow him. But when we do that, something else happens. And Paul describes this as he talks about a single body with many parts. John Wesley, who many of you will know founded Methodism, he said there is no such thing as solitary religion. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social. And what actually happens is you submit your life to Jesus and positionally something changes. You are in Christ. And that sounds really wonderful, and it is. But in Christ, you just you look around. There's loads of other people also in Christ. And some of them, you know, that's glorious. Some of them you're sort of inescapably bound together with. <laughs> but that, that is the genius of church. You look around, and you are not the only one there. We are bound together in Christ. Now, why do I think that's glorious? Because let's, let's admit, church has made some horrible mistakes in its time, hasn't it? And many of us have been uh, elbowed in different ways and been hurt by that. But what Paul is saying here is, one, that difference is good. Paul emphasizes that twice. Yet in verse 4 and verse 6, he says, not all members have the same function. Then he says it again. We have gifts that differ. So it really matters that we are different and that that's a good thing. We need one another. And if you, I don't know, I, if I had an illustration here, I loved Bob's mirrors last week, but if I had an illustration and I had a table with the most delicious donut sitting on there, in a little box, amazing, yummy, fantastic. And I said to Bob, um, without, without bending your arm, Bob, do help yourself to that donut. I was just trying to think, how would he do that other than put his face right in the donut, which would have been quite fun to see. Um, but elbows aren't really things we appreciate that much, are we? Are they? Have you ever said, you know, I really like your elbows? You ever said that to someone? <laughs> but the thing is, when you start to think what your arm would be like without an elbow, even things like getting the most delicious food to your mouth would be extremely challenging. So if you didn't have an elbow, how
Because we are being told that everybody is needed, everybody is valued here. So we find belonging, we find purpose, and these are things that human beings are aching for in our time. And in Christ, they simply come as part of the package. You play your part, you work with others, you serve the greater good. And others meet your needs and you meet the needs of others. You choose community, even when you don't feel like it, even when it costs you. You celebrate the success of others. You celebrate when their gifting exceeds yours. Imagine that. Because what will happen as a result is you will be part of something way bigger and better than anything we each of us could have done by ourselves. So, honestly, as I think about this community here, and I know in some ways this is part of a much bigger body, but in other ways we have been charged, haven't we, to be the body of Christ in this little location, in this time in Exeter. And, and what we need to be doing, I think, is firstly celebrating people operating in their gifting here. So when you see someone operating in a gifting, especially if it's different to yours, I would love you to take the time to name it and thank them. Champion one another different from you and acknowledge that we need each other. So even as we heard about the Alpha Course, we've got an absolutely brilliant team, but Paul here is absolutely right. You can put on an Alpha Course, but they need us, don't they, to actually ask some people to come. And if you're anything close to an evangelist, then you know, come on, let's do it. Let's get people into that course. Every single one of us, I suspect, if we gave it, if we gave it some thought, could invite someone onto that course. We can rent this building, we can switch the lights on, we can warm it up, although in the winter that has been challenging at times. Um, and we can only do that because of people giving generously. And we need, as we come into this building, friendly, beautiful people to welcome you in, don't we? And that is equally important to those that are giving generously. We need each other. We have an amazing people, group of people who will pray for you here at a gathering. But at the same time, we need some to be really passionate about welcoming newcomers. Some of us are brilliant at connecting and gathering people. Some of us have gifts of hospitality. Some of us are going to make this tea happen in a minute. Praise God, that is not my gift. Um, some of us are good at teaching. Paul, Paul um, specifies these seven gifts. Others are good at prophesying, encouraging, showing mercy, having compassion. People feed others in the city uh, as a church um, led by Liz. We help lift the burden of debt. And still others have gift of, gifts of healing and wisdom. Some of those guys who are out the back now have a gift, don't they, to love our children and encourage them and strengthen their faith. Let's thank them over a cup of tea in a minute. So we all have gifts, that's what Paul's saying, a part to play, and our gifts differ, but they are all needed and valued. And the seven gifts that he singles out, I'm not sure because the other lists in the Bible um, single out other gifts. So there are many, many gifts. These lists aren't supposed to be exhaustive. But the point seems to be, use, use your gifting. Find out what your gifts 
yourself. Find out what you're good at and use your gift to benefit and bless the wider body. Do it in God's strength. It's, it's interesting that Paul says something like, with compassion, um, what does he say? Oh, he says, he says, the compassionate in cheerfulness. And you are going to need a boost of Holy Spirit grace on that gift. So that when you have, when you exercise that gift of compassion, you can do it with cheerfulness. And when you exercise that gift of giving, they translate it here as generous, but it actually means simple or single. And I think that's talking about when you give, if you've got a gift to give, give not out of ulterior motives, not, not, not sort of manipulating things, just give simply. But each of us has a gift, and each of us needs not to exercise those gifts in our own strength, but knowing that that gift is God's grace to us. That's what will enable us. So if you have no idea to, where to start with this, ask the Holy Spirit for a prompt. You may be thinking, do you know what, I have no idea what my gifts are. If Paul is right, and you definitely have a part to play in church as a community, ask the Holy Spirit for a bit of a prompt. Ask people to pray for you that God will show you what your gifts might be. Ask a friend who knows you well, what do you think I'm good at? That's a great question. <laughs> Just is 